The podcast that you're about to hear contains acts of sex and violence. The hosts do not claim to be experts on the subjects that they present. Listener discretion is advised. All right, boys and girls, and welcome back to today's edition of Brutal Nation. How was y'all's week? Was it good? Was it fabulous? Did you murder anybody? And most importantly, if you did murder somebody, were you a fucking moron when you did it? <laughs> and Or were you a basic bitch? That that's is right. What, that's that what, is the question of the day. That's on my mind today, because there was a, yet another nurse who I was talking about, but this is like recently, uh, I want to say if she was a nurse or something like that, but killed a couple of people with insulin. Oh, and I, I have Shaw's. That's so. That's so last decade. That is stupid. <laughs> that is some. That is so eighteen hundreds. <laughs> that is so basic bitch shit right there. <laughs> that is like nineteen seventy five. Called they want their murder <laughs> weapon back. <laughs> yeah, no shit, right? That's freaking <sighs> ridiculous. I'll kill people with insulin. How no. about how about you shoot yourself because you're too fucking stupid to live? Exactly. I want to smack that lady's mama. And look at her and go, right that's because you have... Right the head. Yeah, I'll smack her mom and go, that's because you have a retarded-ass fucking kid. That's you right. teach her better. She didn't listen to this goddamn show to learn how to really kill people. I'm telling you. I'm your host, Scott Alexander, right across me. The one, the only, the... You're sounding better with the demonious things, the, the pedonia. Without the... Without the Pannonia. Without the Pannonia. Not the Pannocha, but the Pannonia. The, the Pannonia, whatever. Because <laughs> you've had pneumonia. Yes. And you've been, like, dying and shit. Oh, well, it was... Because... On Christmas Eve, when we recorded Christmas Eve, because we had the show the 23rd, you know, and that's when you got your birthday present or a Christmas present, and we didn't record that day. And so um, we recorded on Sunday, and my fever, was, I think by the time I left, it got up to what, 102, 103? Something like that. It was something it was stupid not, amount. It was nasty. And then I went home, went to bed. And woke up in the middle of the night, thought my fever had broke, but no, took my temperature again. It was like 104. And I was like, this is just insane. But I finally, on Friday, went to urgent care and she said my pneumonia is so bad, she's surprised I wasn't in the hospital. So, but now I'm, I'm slowly recovering. I'm still really achy and lethargic, but... No, yeah, hopefully that comes, goes away. The soon. shit that's going around is fucking brutal. I'm telling you, man. Because like it everybody is. knows getting sick. I got sick forever in a day. It this is. Shit fucking sucks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, put this right. I, I would seriously rather somebody fucking kick me in the nuts than go through right that shit that I went through. That was just bronchitis. Yeah, well, see, and they think that mine was bronchitis, but I didn't go like you did. And so it eventually turned into pneumonia because it didn't get any better. Of which I have to call my doctor's office on Monday because I got a bill for another 30 bucks and it's not supposed to be that. I paid my copay. Yeah, you paid it there. Yeah, I paid it right there. And it shows that I paid it. So something's fucked up. But I'm That's like, uh, not today, Satan. <laughs> you have enough of my money, damn you. Goddamn right, man. Yeah. I pay for insurance for a reason. I pay my copay. Lick my hole. Okay. That's right. So today is part two of this bizarre ass. Oh, it's it's gonna get even weirder i, I keep thinking about i know her story because you know like i said she's oregon and she was a famous inmate in oregon so i keep on thinking about this this diane down syndrome <laughs> stop calling her that she must have down she must be fully on full-on retarded <laughs> to think that anybody would believe. so i'll recap for you guys because i remember yeah. it okay so here's a here's the dealio diane here rolls up to the hospital in springfield oregon Saying, somebody shot my three kids. One kid dies. Yes. The other two, they managed to save them. Party. The, ki- the, the, the boy, probably going to be paralyzed for the rest of his right. life. And the daughter, 
has a now has a speech problem because there was some damage to she her had brain. Had a stroke. Yeah, had yeah. a stroke. Okay. Can you imagine a seven-year-old having a stroke? Meanwhile, here's Diane, you know, all nonchalant, like, oh, the bullet missed their hearts? Yeah, hmm. about the boy, the bullet oh. missed his heart? Yeah. Like, oh. huh, how weird. I guess I didn't draw a big enough bullseye. <laughs> I guess that the guy spot. didn't aim right. <laughs> Fucking idiot. And her whole excuse was, there, I, I was on a deserted, on a dark desert highway. <laughs> Anyway, in the middle of the night, in the middle of the night, I'm on a deserted piece of road where these two roads meet and a bushy haired stranger was on a gravel road, flagged me down. I stopped. I got out of my car. He said, give me your car. I said, no, you're not taking my Nissan. And (laughs) then he reached in, shot my kids and then poof, disappeared. Oh, and shot me in the arm. Shot me in the arm as I was trying to get away. Yeah. Yeah. Which all of that right there. I'm sniffing. You smell that? I smell bullshit. Yeah. I just like, smell. It's getting deep. Getting deep. Like, it's almost like there's five oh, yeah. dairies all around each other. That's how much Dude, bullshit there it's, is. It's horrible. This lady's like driving out to my old house in the summertime. <laughs> it's disgusting. I used to haul milk and tankers and oh, have yeah. to go to dairies. And well, you God know, damn. I grew up on a dairy and I never realized it until it's like you're away from it for a long time and then you drive by and it's like, holy no. <laughs> See, I used to love the smell of cows. Like seriously, and I like the smell of cow shit. Well, I like the smell of cows, but not the not the, the poo so fucking, much. I didn't, it never bothered me. Oh. You know, because I've worked a lot with cows. And yeah. fucking, then, until I started hauling dairy, you yeah. know, one of the dairies, obviously, you're, oh, God damn. Yeah, That's and then in the summertime, it's way worse. Oh, yeah, big way time. Way worse. All right, so let's talk about Diane yeah. Down syndrome. So, so now we're, we're going to learn a little bit about her past for a minute here. We're going to kind of go back a little bit. So Diane was actually born on August 7th, 1955 in Phoenix, Arizona. Her parents, her mom's name was Willadine. Yeah, Willadine. And her dad's name was Wes. Fredrickson's, and they had actually named her Elizabeth Diane. But as the years went on, she just preferred to be called Diane. Um, now, her parents got married when they were in their teen years, and they were still teenagers when Diane was born. So they were like in awe of having this small life to main, you know, that they had to take care of and make sure she lived. And they loved their baby. But at the same time, and I think this is common for that time period because it happened with my mom and her siblings, is they actually didn't have that ability to show the warm fondness that a child normally expects from a parent. You know what I mean? Because my grandma and grandpa never told their children they loved them. You know, they just felt they showed them by, you know, taking care of them kind of thing. Right. Yeah. I mean, and I think that's the the sign of that time. You know what I mean? It could be, yeah. Yeah. Make so it's better than the little pussy ass kids that we have today. Oh my god! Like it, 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 you looked at me funny. In, in my day, okay. So like my brother Phil, he was jumping a ramp that we made that was totally unsafe. Like I gotta admit it. Like we're lucky we didn't die just trying to jump off that. But he had a park van. Uh huh. Knocked himself the fuck out. <laughs> <laughs> and before adults could get there, I mean, he had some blood going on. I'll admit that. He got up, shook it off, and he goes, "What happened, man?" <laughs> you hit a parked van, dear, dude. Yeah. And so, ain't that a bitch? <laughs> Did I hurt the van? I don't want to be in trouble for hurting the van. And it's a ramp, okay? That was it. <laughs> Today, man, a kid yeah. walks into a door and bumps his shoulder. Oh, I'm traumatized. I'm Dude. in a safe space. Oh, my God. <laughs> Somebody call him. I'm not Step even my a doctor. 
and shit like that. Back, yeah, no. This is for you millennials and you younger folks, man. Back yeah, in my no. day, seriously, we could get shot. No, if we if my grandpa was notorious for slap some mud on it, you'll be fine. You know, but yeah, no, we used to do some stupid shit as kids, stupid shit. And then when I was a teenager and got in a car accident, like literally the only thing that saved me and the four people in the car's lives was the blackberry bushes held my car up from going down into the ravine. I called my mom and she goes, is the car okay? Like, really? <laughs> yeah. Because it's like, you don't ask if I'm okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm telling you, man, fucking, because uh, our, our parents knew, our parents knew that... Unless an, a limb literally gets torn off. Yeah. Yeah, we're going to get some bumps. We're going to say, God dang, that hurts. We might even cry a little bit. But within yeah. a couple of hours, we're, we're sitting there going. And, and they would always say, don't do no more stupid shit. And they would, I'm not going to do any more stupid shit. And then you go outside. Yeah. Hey, what's a good idea? Let's climb over this barbed wire fence and then jump yeah. down into a junkyard where it's really dangerous. We'll probably die. Great idea. <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> Sounds like fun. Yeah, Mike's, my son didn't even cry when he got... When he tore open his knee and had to have stitches, he didn't cry until he got to the hospital and the nurse showed him what it looked like. Yeah. Because I always laughed at him first. Whenever he fell or something, I'd laugh first. And then I'd say, are you okay, buddy? Because then it's like he didn't make a big deal out of getting hurt. But, yeah, that's what people need to do. Laugh when their kid get hurt. Gets hurt. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Anyway, so let's anyways, talk about Diane Down syndrome. Yeah. I love calling her that because <laughs> after hearing that first part of the story. Yeah. She's obviously mega retarded. Yeah. So, anyways, when she was in school, you know, like... Get this. I mean, when she was in school, she she was pretty intelligent, but she was never part of the in crowd. And most of that is because her parents were, you know, old school disciplinarian Baptist parents. Praise the Lord. Which, you know, that style. It's like you can't wear the trendy clothes or, you know, the fads or anything because that's just Satan. That's you know, Satan coming to yes, and and then the, and and you bet, heaven hell. forbid if you go to a dance and start gyrating your hips like Elvis Presley. We don't listen to the Elvis Presley. <laughs> He's just inviting demons into his home. Praise the Lord, Hallelujah! So that resulted in her being considered what they called a washout. So wherever she went, she was you know an ugly duckling, or the term back then a square. She was hip to be square. I was thinking of the same thing. It's a little Huey Lewis in the news for you guys. For nobody who knows. I miss them. So according to the book Small Sacrifices, Diane says that her father allegedly molested her when she was 11 years old. She told the authorities later that um, although he molested her, he it never led to intercourse, you know, like penetration intercourse. She said that he just fondled and caressed her. She said that on weekends, he would take her on rides to the desert, and once they're away from civilization, he would make her remove her blouse and bra while he watched. But then she said that those perversions ended almost as quickly as they began, and he became more of a typical father, as if, you know, perhaps, you know, not doing it, would she would forget all about it. So at, by the time she was 14 years old, he actually allowed her to, jo- to enroll in a charm school. So that was the start of a new Diane. Maybe that's what I needed was a charm school. Yeah. But no, the, the, the molestation actually makes sense because we've talked about this before. Right. Especially with girls. With, with, with girls uh, and, and guys, too. When they're molested, uh, any child's molested, you either get turned off by sex altogether. Right, right. Um, or you get overly sexual. Yeah, or, yeah, you, yeah. Uh, fucking, you're, you're, you're hypersexual. So she's jumping from bed to bed, and she's looking for rea- mm. She's looking for some affirmation. She's jumping right. from bed to bed, and then she finds good old Lou. 
That was the boyfriend. If you guys didn't hear the, uh, but, well, yeah. the, I'm sorry. The the she was the, having an affair on her affair, husband. What, yeah, yeah. So I mean, so we'll I mean, because we'll go over some more about that too. You know, because she um. You know, because when she enrolled in charm school, she ended up, she got the new trendy haircut and her clothing was more up to date. And at this point, it's like, whoa, she doesn't look like the wallflower. So boys began to notice her. And of course, Diane was hungry for love. She responded, Was she hungry like the wolf? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like the one wolf. Like the one wolf. That's, by the way, for you younger folks, that's Duran Duran. We make a lot of music references out yeah. here. Oh, yeah, I have to explain this to our younger listeners. The yeah. are they talking about it? So yeah, listen to some '80s rock for crying out. Go listen to hair bands; you'll love them. Oh hell yeah! And smoke a lot of weed. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> or, or, or take some shrooms and go watch Pink Floyd Laser Show. <laughs> oh my god, isn't that fucking amazing? <laughs> it was amazing. Yeah, the Pink Floyd Laser Show, man. I tell <laughs> you what, Pink Floyd the Wall Laser Show at Omsi on shrooms. Oh my god, best show that you'll ever see ever in your life. You remember ever. it until like your last words will be like. Before I go, I want to say, oh, God, I see death right now. <laughs> the Pink Floyd laser show on shrooms was bad. <laughs> it Fucking was okay. ass. That and then you'll die. Like, that is like a bucket list. you got to try it. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> so anyways, you know, so she, because she was starting to get the attention, she responded in kind. You know, she gave him the flashy eyes, you know, those doe eyes and swing her hips and, you know, like the hee <laughs> giggles. Yeah, maybe she doesn't have Down syndrome. Diane. Call me. <laughs> yeah. So Stephen was actually one of the boys that, and this reminded me, remember those Sweet Valley High books back in our day? That Vaguely. every girl read, <laughs> you know, in the babysitter club type thing. See, and so, I never read those. Um, well, of course you didn't. You were a guy. You read the Hardy Boys and shit. <laughs> no, I didn't even read those. I was oh, reading, you didn't? No, I was reading books by like Faulkner and... Uh, oh, of course you were. I, I was fucking geeky as shit. Yeah. Oh, I... Okay, I can see that. Okay, think farm boy, hillbilly, geeky. Here I am wearing cowboy in boots. In California. In California, because that's where we were. Um, and wearing jeans and cowboy boots and my button-up fucking, like, regular-type... Western shirts. Western shirts and shit like that and having a southern draw. And then people go, oh, he's dumb as a fucking box of hammers. And it's like, no, he's in all the tagged classes. Yeah. All the ta- talented and gifted I still get to get you a couple of them western shirts. When we saw him on that last band that opened for you at Beard of Time, I was like, I got to get Scott one of them. It's too flowery for me, man. <laughs> I do, I do want to go get some new shirts. Some though, flashy. I... <laughs> I am so fucking cheap. I have shirts in my closet that I still wear today that are better than 10 years old. Oh, I believe it. I've done your laundry. <laughs> I think you have underwear in there that's 10 years old. No, I, I cycled through my underwear. I did oh, that. And okay. I've, been, I've been slowly cycling through my socks. Yeah. But I do want to get some different shirts that, you know, that. that yeah. You know, so, I, so I can dress better. I don't, I'm tired of looking like a hobo. You are a hobo. Anyways, so he was, Steve Downs was one of the boys at Moon Valley High that fell in love with her almost instantly. It's, you know, like love at first sight because she was pretty and, you know, started to get her little shape together. She was just a small town girl living in a lonely world. I feel you. I feel oh you, Diane. Oh, my God. And at least it was in a high school and not a soup kitchen in Jacksonville. Oh, my God, yes. So they. Because she's not cross eyed, <laughs> buck toothed, and missing an eye. And droops. And so they instantly, I mean, it's like almost immediately, they became boyfriend and girlfriend and they went everywhere together. And everywhere they went, they were like fawning each other and they were like arm in arm constantly. But then after graduation, they kind of parted ways a little bit. He went, he joined the Navy and she went to Pacific Coast. Baptist Bible College. That's a mouthful. Oh, speaking of that, 
Huh. Do you know why most women can't count to 70? Oh, my God, why? Because 69 is a mouthful. <sighs> Again, I got to go take a shower. <laughs> Anyways, so, but they still course, they still wrote to each other continuously, right? And she actually promised Steve that she would save herself for him. But then something must have got lost in translation by what she meant by save herself because after the first year, she was expelled from the Bible college for promiscuity. <laughs> yeah. But, okay, hold on. She probably meant it when she sent it. Oh yeah. Okay, but you're 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 in your late teens. You're you know early twenties. Yeah, and, and in the early seventies, and you get horny, man. Yeah, and then we talked about it already with Einhorn. The early seventies, it's that free love era. You that know, that far back in the seventies. Yeah, because in nineteen, she, her, and Steve came home in uh, nineteen seventy three, and they were married by November thirteenth. Oh, okay. Well, pardon. yeah, yeah. You, you get horny. Yeah, like, dude, I'm I'm 50 and I woke up to, to okay. I gotta share this with you. It's fucking like this morning, right? I wake up and I have a splitting fucking headache, and I don't know what is up with my junk. But it was standing at full attention, like pay attention to me, Do motherfucker. Do we need to know this? <laughs> I don't. I, I can't figure that stuff out. I have a splitting headache. You would think I need some like some well, headache medicine and coffee, but no. Here's my junk sitting there going, hey, how's it going, man? I just I woke up before you. I already made a sandwich. <laughs> just now getting in from the bar. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I had stamps all over it. Yeah. It started the coffee for me. Dude. <laughs> I started the coffee, but you got you to do that yourself. I'm well, not see, you it. know, and some women can be like that. I mean, because I've had times when it's like, I am sick as hell. But it's like, damn, no. Gots to, gots to do something. Okay, I have a ha-ha story for, for everybody out there. So, oh, shit. When I was married to my second ex-wife. Okay. Okay. Um, I was having this vivid sex dream, okay. of which she was involved. She, she was in oh, my dream. Okay. It wasn't with somebody else or anything like that. And apparently, I was getting frisky with her in like real life. Oh, while I, you were sleeping? I woke up and I looked at the clock. Holy shit! It's two o'clock in the morning. I gotta be up in like two hours. And I, she's all, "You're gonna finish, babe. I'm tired. I gotta be up in a couple." And I oh, I sleeping. would kill you. She was pissed. Isn't even the word. Was I'm, she pissed beyond all passivity? I'm pretty <laughs> sure that it's only pure luck that she is not being featured on Brutal Nation, and I'm not in a grave. <laughs> pissed. She probably didn't know how to get rid of the body at that time. She's probably like, it's a big house. I can hide him in the walls. Oh, yeah, no. So, anyway, so it's like, it almost is like, almost as soon as the, like, the minister or preacher or whatever said, you may now kiss the bride, I pronounce you husband and wife, their relationship was shaky, like, you know. I, I can I can relate to that. Yeah. Mertz and I. Right. Like, Mertz and I are still the best of friends. It's my first wife. Yeah. And I love Mertz. Dude, I love, I love my first ex-wife, too. <laughs> I would move moon and stars for Maritza. Yeah. I always tell everybody, she's my favorite ex-wife. If she called me right now and said, get get down to Southern California right now, I wouldn't even question it. Yeah. I'd be like, adios, pichachos. I'm gone. Right. I got shit to take care of. I don't know if she just needs me to move some piece of furniture or murder somebody. But right. Maritza wants me down there. Right. Um, But when we were married, like... It was rough almost from the get-go. <laughs> well, yeah, because you guys were really young. Yeah, we got married at 19. 
Yeah. Which wasn't the best move Let's ever. Explain the porn stash a little bit. Hey, leave my porn stash alone. Just wow, wow. It. In <laughs> Southern California, there's only one stud on the street. <laughs> <laughs> Do hey, you need your pool fixed? <laughs> I'm the pool man. I and hate those. Those are so stupid. I'm here to clean your pool. There is like no, it's like they have no plot. By the way, Miss Johnson, I'm also able with the cable. <laughs> and I'm good at plumbing. Do you need me to uh, lay some pipe? Oh my God, you're so dumb. So anyway, <laughs> let me get on with this. Steve worked part time and Diane... Found, you know, quickly found out that this high school sweetheart of hers was not the noble escape she thought it was going to be, but more of a repeat of her father. You know, she had wanted love, but realized way too late that he was not it. She was literally looking for love but, in all the wrong places. Yeah, pretty like much. And then she actually became pregnant almost right away. Right. So she she found that while she was pregnant and carrying this life inside of her that she it made her for the first time feel that she was in charge of a love that was totally dependent on her. That's right? A, that's very Which common. Which happens with women a lot. Yeah, it's very, very common. Yeah. So, because um, I remember being young and all I wanted was a child to love. Well, I'll, I'll and I always you. knew I'd be a better parent than, and you know, I was raised. So. Women are amazing on this. And this isn't even one of my fucked up jokes. I know I always have to remind you guys that well, when I'm joking and when I'm not. You women are freaking amazing. It's not us guys that are strong. It really isn't. It's women. Y'all can carry a life in you for nine months. Yeah. Actually, Give 10. Birth. It's 40 weeks, so 10. And keep that motherfucker alive. Oh, yeah. After it's born. I, I, I can barely keep a houseplant alive. I know, right? You know, I, Jesus Christ. It's, it, it's freaking amazing. Yeah. Uh, just hats off to women. All across, but putting all my sexism and, and fucking you know, and as and as horrible as my pregnancy was with the complications and stuff that I had, um, I loved being pregnant. You know what I mean? I loved feeling him grow inside of me, like and, a chia pet. Yeah, kind of. Not really a chia pet, but yeah. But you know what I mean? It's just like that, like a crotch thing. demon. It's like that. You know, as soon as you find out, well, most women, as soon as they find out they're pregnant, it's like that is your whole world now. You know what I mean? You will do. You will murder for this child, and that's the way it should be. Yeah. That's why, even in nature, you know, they, they, <laughs> they never say the daddy bear came and protected his cubs. No, it's the mom bear. Mom bear. Even Dad- after the penguins, I mean, because penguins, the males lay on, sit on the eggs while the women go hunt for food. Yeah. But even after the penguins born, the mom takes over. Oh, exactly, man. Because so. the males are just sitting there watching Sports Center and yeah. uh, you know maybe but, a little but, bit of you porn. <laughs> Probably <laughs> little penguin porn. <laughs> You're looking for that video. I know you are. I'm so, looking for love in all the wrong places <laughs> so too. So, anyways, she, you know, I, like I said, she, you know, so it was a feeling she had that she never realized she could have, and so she relished in that, like that <coughs> newfound love that she was feeling, you know. And she thought, hey, this is it, you know. But after Chrissy was born in October 1974, and she went back to, you know, making sure Steve had his meals and everything. And he didn't care that, you know, she had a baby to take care of her and she also worked part-time. Because, you know, you're a wife. You're a Baptist wife. You're subservient to your husband. You must be in the kitchen cooking food and have it on the table by 5 p.m. when I walk through the door. Okay, I, I got an opinion about that, okay? I totally respect that way of life, okay? Right. However... He's only working part time, exactly. so really, you're not pulling your weight, bud. I'm, I, I, I respect, right. I respect what y'all believe. Okay, I do, but mm-hmm. at the same time, 
you need to pull your own way. A part-time job to support your family? Right. Dude, no. Even back then, no. Yeah, even back then, no. No. I mean, no, and I agree. I mean, I agree to it to a certain extent because, like, you know, when I wasn't working, when mom told me to be a stay-at-home mom, I mean, there were, there was, I swear, like a three- or four-year period where we had, uh, there, I never cooked the same meal twice. You know, dinner was always done. I kept the house clean and everything until I had my nervous breakdown. And then all that stopped because I couldn't function, you know. But, yeah, it's it was just that's what you do. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, so I don't think I've ever only worked a part-time job, even in college. Yeah. I've always had a full-time job. And, so. Uh, but I'm a different breed. I'm a different breed of person. Right. That's and, true. And also, I... Uh, Never recommend anybody works like I. Nobody should ever work like I do, like ever. Because it, it honestly, <laughs> I just say whatever, dude. I work like you do. People sit there and go, they go, man, you have an amazing work ethic. It's stupid. It's re- it's the dumbest fucking thing you can ever yeah, do. I've heard people say, I don't understand how you guys can do what you do and not sleep. I go because I never sleep. The program that way. I I just can't. I've been an insomniac since I was ten years old. Had anxiety attacks since I was six. It's just I don't sleep. You know, I get anxious about uh, being caught for trying to smuggle Asian girls into my backyard. You should get in trouble for that. I should. So anyways, you know, so it went back to that. You know, it's like nobody loves me kind of thing. So she was starting to fall apart emotionally. So she did the only thing she knew to do to get it back. She got pregnant again. Yeah, that makes sense. And so by January 1976, little Cheryl Lynn was born. Then throughout 76 and 77, Diane actually ran away from Steve on many occasions, but she always went back. He would go looking for her, and she was often at one relative's house or another. And once they got back together, it was, you know, the phrase they use is monkey chasing the weasel time. You know, he was unhappy. She was unhappy. But, hey, they continued to be married. A lot of people do that, though. Yeah. A lot of people will will live their entire lives. Oh, yeah. Hating their spouse. Oh, yeah. They stay married for some inane reason. Like, we're it's usually the, the children. children. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> we're staying married for the kids. Or the tax write-off, you know? Oh, that's the only good thing about kids. They're little fucking tax deductions. Yes. So, Diane, according to uh, Ann Rule, she said, Diane waited for something to happen. She was hostile, but passive. She was both bored and angry. Life was passing her quickly, and none of the things she had promised herself had ever come true. So then, you know, um, Diane decided to get pregnant again, only this time not Steve's baby. In 1978, they had moved to Mesa, Arizona, where he, Diane and Steve, actually started working for the same mobile home manufacturing company. And on the assembly line, Diane found a man that was her stud, whom she began to seduce passionately. And soon she found herself pregnant again, Um, And Danny was born four days after Christmas in 1979. But even though Danny wasn't Steve's child, he accepted him as his own. But the marriage um, within a year was done. They decided to get a divorce. Diane moved in with, with, actually moved in with Danny's father. And it was during that time that she started to change. Because now she didn't have to abide by the Baptist uh, rules on marriage, right? I kind of respect Steve for doing that, though. Right. Because Me especially too, in that time, actually. And that time right there, he had every right to sit there and go, the fuck out with that kid. That's right. But he, how dare you? He did the right thing. Right. And said, okay, I'm going you know, mm-hmm. to accept this child as, as, as my own and we'll raise it. And so right. I, 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 I totally respect that. Totally right. Respect exactly. That. But she also, you know, 
so now that, you know, she didn't have to abide by the Baptist rules on marriage, she also started to ignore her duties as a mother. Now, the, um, you know, the drug she had of her children's love when they, she was pregnant with them was gone. She actually preferred to work. She stayed away from home whenever she could. And there was, she could, anytime she could find a babysitter, she was gone. And then one sitter actually related an incident, even though she didn't know it at the time, was probably a foreshadow of what was to come. She said, Diane put everything before those kids. If Danny wanted attention, she'd push him away. But the worst thing was one time I got I caught Cheryl jumping on the bed and I said that was not permitted and I made her sit in a chair and think about it. Cheryl sat quiet, quietly for a while. Then she looked up and said, do you have a gun here? The baby said, of course not. Why? And Cheryl goes, I want to shoot myself. My mom says I'm bad. Holy shit. Yeah. God Could you damn. imagine? That's fucked up, man. Yeah. And then, God damn it. I know. In 1981, Diane actually got hired on full-time at the post office and they stationed her in Chandler and that's where she met Lou Lewiston the guy you know that she fell right. in love with that was married her, her secret and th- lover yeah and then she he decided he wanted to go back to his wife and how dare somebody actually make the decision to walk away from her as opposed to her making the decision to walk away from him you know so after he left her she was like so distraught that she actually went back went to Oregon, moved to Oregon to live with her parents, but she couldn't understand or accept why he left her and why it didn't go her way. See, that shows a lot of mental instability right there because, you know, anybody else, uh, okay, like, so like, if I had a chick that broke up with me that I was still madly in love with, right, okay, while it's going to hurt, right, I, I'm not going to sit there and do what she did. You know what I mean? Like, right. Like, like stalk him. Yeah, I'm not And bang st- on his door and threaten his wife and Right. I'm gonna I am gonna cry. I'll tell you that. I'm gonna cry like a motherfucker. But I'm not gonna be a total cunt about it. Yeah. Yeah. I can see that. So in now Let's fast forward to, you know, after she shot her kids in 83. In June, Assistant DA Fred Hughey met with his his investigative crew to review what they had found. Whether or not, to, and they still need to decide whether or not they were going to arrest Diane Downs um, because that was unsettled. He wanted to see her in handcuffs, but not at the expense of the county office, which would take extreme heat if that case were thrown out in pre-trial. And not right? as a date either. As a what? As a date. Oh, my God. <laughs> Spank me, big detective. Yeah, and handcuff. Yeah, oh, my God. You just don't even know. So, nevertheless, he and his men were convinced that she had shot her children. But they were afraid that without the murder weapon or a witness who saw her shoot them, what they believed or gathered to that time was, like, just circumstantial at best, which we all know is not going to convict in an American courtroom. Correct. Okay. So the team actually examined what they had collected so far among the evidence were the 22 caliber bullet casings found on Old Mohawk Road, a graphic display of carnage, you know, in her Nissan Pulsar, you know, all the blood and everything. Right. The estimation of the bullets passed from an accepted authority, a diary that screamed her obsession over Lou. The letters she wrote him with, you know, that were all like basically smut letters. And testimony from two men, both Steve and Lou, who swore she owned a 22 caliber handgun that she says she didn't have. 
Now, the most expressive piece of evidence came from the pen of a forensic expert, Jim Pex, who wrote that it was his estimation that some of the unfired 22 caliber shells found in Diane's home had once been worked through the mechanism of the same gun that shot the children. Now, impressive as that was, it's not enough. You know, the court could still refute it. Any attorney could still refute that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the investigators were able, had also been able to shed a little bit of doubt on her story that she immediately raced for the hospital after the attack. Because by the testimony of the hospital personnel, she arrived outside the ER doors at roughly 1048 p.m. saying, somebody shot my kids. That estimated time she had left the Plord's house, was, according to Heather, was 945. So the detectives knew that the shooting then must have occurred around 1015 in order to give her enough time to gather her sentence, survey the condition of her kids, and then drive immediately to the hospital, right? To reach it by 1048. But in the meantime, a witness came forward saying that he had seen what he was sure was Diane's red car near 1020 p.m. moving very slowly five to seven miles an hour along Old Mohawk Road. Right? Which, okay. who drives five to seven miles on a back road in the daytime, let alone night, right? So he said the car wasn't even driving erratically. You know, so at that time, her, her kids would have been shot by 1020. So why was she only going five to seven miles an hour, is what they're saying. Because she's cruising low and slow, baby. Dude, she got the rolling. Because <laughs> she's rolling dirty. <laughs> I wasn't even going to do that one. I know. So after that, you know, but then there was another, you know, telling thing. But it, again, it's just, you know, not anything they can prove. The legal wills behind Hughie believed also that Diane was guilty. And the DA maneuvered those wills to spin to show his support for the long hours his assistant was dedicating to, you know, apprehend this killer. So in Lane County, a grand jury assembled behind closed doors. And, the you know, the grand jury panelists wanted to hear directly from those main players that and the list of testifiers that Hughie had also come up with so far. Um, among them was another former lover, Mr. Inman, Heather Plore, Jim Pex, you know, the, the forensic specialist, and some others. And then they eventually heard from Diane herself. So other positive things were happening, though. County Judge Gregory Foote placed the two surviving Downs youngsters in the protective custody of the child protective services which is excellent right yes. don't send them back home with their mother yeah no shit so that meant for the meantime diane was not even allowed to see her children and she felt she was being treated like a criminal in reality a nose some you know it was like a thumb to the nose by hugie after she violently threatened to remove the children from the hospital and take them away if detectives didn't stop hounding her well you so know he's like thumbed his nose at her and being like nope He's, protective custody. She's sitting there going, you'll be treated like a criminal. All I can say is, man, if it walks like you a duck. You were a criminal. And it quacks like a duck. Probably a duck. <laughs> yeah, and at that time, Danny was still confined to his bed. And he was given full protection by the police department until he would be medically released. So at that time, he would follow his, you know, he would go with uh, Christy into a suitable foster family. The homework. Christy was given what was taken to was actually kept a secret so nobody knew where she was except for the authorities so basically a safe house right 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 so in the middle of the grand jury summons process and the ongoing search for more evidence in particular 
um, they were, of course, looking for that vanishing gun. The sheriff's office announced they were going to be doing a bunch of layoffs. Um, they immediately laid off Paul Alton, and then Doug Welch and another one of Hughie's top men, Kurt West, were given a month's notice. The other investigators, if they weren't let go, they were redeployed somewhere else. So throughout that winter and into the spring of 84, uh, Diane was becoming the media's favorite star, you know, because she did not. I mean, some of them actually took up her plight saying, you know, why is she being treated like this if she didn't shoot her kids type thing. However, some of them didn't trust her. Um, most of them just, I think she was so newsworthy because she's a beautiful woman and people said that she resembled Princess Diana, which everybody loved at that time. And so she relished staying in the, you know, eyes of the media. Um, but Hughie says he saw her for anything but a doting princess, whether it be a good one or a bad one. She, he said she was more like the Wicked Witch. Uh, she would create havoc anywhere. Her kids had been taken away from her, and she was indignant that she could not have these children, and she was seeking revenge. She would talk to the press and tell them how misunderstood she was, that she was a victim of prejudice, and they were just harassing her. And, you know, and rather than feed into that, he just let her talk, you know, because like they did Ward the Third, Just yep. let them speak because they'll, they'll eventually say what we want to hear. That old saying, man, give someone enough rope, they'll hang themselves. Yeah. Um, he actually, you know, didn't even make it a secret that he was having her followed and investigated openly and everything. So finally, she called for what she hoped would turn into a peace treaty. She called a meeting with two detectives to explain her side of the story and pass on further information that she didn't tell them yet about what happened that night. So at first, you know, they were like, okay. So they figured this, they were hoping this new revelation might actually produce something new. But sensing they were actually being conned, the session led to what would become known, according to, um, <laughs> to Ann Rule, called the hardball interview. At, you know, at this meeting, Diane explained that she believed the killer was someone she might have known because he called her by name. Now, if this is true, the information would have made a great impact on the entire case. But to the men in the, you know, in the meeting with her, it was clear a charade. It was just another lie. It, is the, the, it was an attempt to delay the proceedings that she felt they were moving to press charges against her. Think about this. Okay. So she stopped and she got out of the car. Mm -hmm. Okay. So now we have what, what's called time. So you it, let's say she gets out of the car and she stands up. What's that take? That takes at least five seconds. Right. Okay. You're looking at this bushy-haired, quote-unquote, stranger. Right. You're going you're gonna to recognize, hey, don't I fill in the blank, work with you? Don't you shop over at Safeway? Yeah. Don't you shop at Fred Meyer? Aren't don't you the you... guy who bags my groceries? Yeah. yeah. Don't you live down the road from me? If you're going to have that recognition. And that would, in turn, get you shot. Yeah. You know, because can't have anybody know it was me. And plus, you you would have said that right in the beginning. Hey, yeah. Hey, I recognize the guy. Even if you don't know who he is, I recognize the guy, but I'm not sure from where. Yeah. Type of a thing. Yeah. You know, so yeah, Diane was full of shit. I right. mean, God damn. At every turn. But see, and this is the thing, though, is that when her, you know, those people who supported her found out what she had said during this interview, uh, they kind of like flipped the switch on her. They started verbally, they started 
you know, attacking her verbally with more interrogation themselves. And she would, it turned out that she was the one that got deceived and not <laughs> the one deceiving the investigators. See, it makes me want to send her a box of x lax You want to know why? Because <laughs> she's full of shit. <laughs> right? Needs to Obviously impacted. Out. Yep, yep. So why was she telling them this now? She didn't know. How did he know what road she was going to take home from Heather's? I don't know. Was he a friend from Oregon? A friend from Arizona? She still didn't know. It. I mean, she told him at every turn. I don't know. So what purpose do we have to kill her kids? I don't know. Did she really rush to the hospital immediately after the kids were shot? Or did she just take a little breaky poo? I don't know. Really? You don't know? So why didn't she try to stop him when he began blasting away the, when he started shooting his kids? I don't know. Right? It's like, how do you not Jesus. know the answer to some of those? So when they asked her point blank if she tried to kill her kids because they ruined her chances with her lover, well, she did have an answer for that. She called them names, threatened them, and told them they were all fed up and stormed out of the room. Now, whether or not that was a ploy for sympathy, just in case she needed some, you know, in case a jury convened against her, you know, because you need a jury of your peers and how better to taint the jury pool than to go on national TV all the time. Um, She... Or whether she near, merely needed to feel love again. Uh, but she went out and got pregnant. Once again, from one of her favorite studs in Oregon, she made sure to explain the symbolic meaning of her action to a TV reporter. I got pregnant because I miss Christy and I miss Danny and I miss Cheryl so much. You can't replace children, but you can replace the effect that they give you. And they give me love. They give me a satisfaction. They give me stability. They give me a reason to live and a reason to be happy. And a reason to kill. And a reason, perhaps, maybe, to escape death row? Yeah. (laughs) You think? So um, Paula Krogdale was a counselor who was put in charge of, you know, mentally raising Christy and, like, getting her to her nightmares to go away. And she was making progress in the meantime while Diane was doing all this bullshit. So she actually started to talk and she started to remember and she started to face what really happened to her that night. Now, while, um, you know, but at the same time, Crowdell was taking like baby steps with her, you know, don't because you don't want to rush a child like that with something that traumatic. Right. Everything takes time. Exactly. It takes time. So, and so she didn't even talk about the murder scene for a long time. She just got Christy to start talking about her family, her life, and her mom. And Christy admitted that Diane used to hit her and her brother and sister a lot. And then when the day came, the therapist asked her to remember what happened the night of what Christy called, because Christy referred to it as that terrible thing. She said, was there anyone there that, that night that you didn't know? Refer, you know, was she hair stranger? And the girl goes, no. And um, she go, were Danny and Cheryl crying? No. Why wasn't Cheryl crying? She's dead. A pause. Then do you know who was shooting Christy? I think. But Christy wouldn't answer. She wouldn't say the words. But Krogdahl didn't push her. Now, Hughie decided to bite the bullet. Now, some experts told him he had enough evidence to at least get it to trial, and they believed he had a strong case based mostly on circumstantial evidence. But he would need to have to recreate that terrible thing in court, piece all the fragrance together in such a way that the jurors saw what he saw and totally believe it. So the grand jury was wrapping up after nine months, and they had spoken to, quizzed, and deliberated on the words of so many people, including Diane. And at the end of those nine months, the 
with all the testimony they they had, they handed down an indictment, one charge of murder, two charges of attempted murder, and two charges of criminal assault. The state of Oregon was going for that child killer's throat. So on February 28, 1984, police cuffed Diane and she was, uh, as she was coming from her car in a parking lot at the post office. Now, District Attorney Pat Horton, along with the Lane County Sheriff, uh, Sheriff David Burks at the time, they actually held a press conference. Um, they said the one thing that understood this investigation is patience. The real battle will be in the courtroom. Now, reporters came out in droves, right? They all wanted to know what was happening with this woman. Um, newspapers and their magazines already announced that Diane Downs had been taken into custody and that hell, the lookalike Princess Di might very well be a killer after all. Time Magazine was there. The Washington Post was there. Um, there were journalists from as far away as New York City. And most were professional in their reporting with some tabloid-like, you know, things coming out in the local Springfield area and Chandler, Arizona. Find if any, and if they could find anybody who knew Diane or was willing to talk about her, they would interview them. So when the Eugene Register Guard found Diane's father, the paper noted he was gallant to the end. If my daughter did it, then I believe, in fact, she should pay. But nothing can take away the love a father has for his kids. Now, so in the wake of the trial, Diane actually sought as her counselor the brilliant and highly esteemed attorney Melvin Belly. Because of the high-profile case that she had generated he wanted to take it on but he had per he had his own personal agenda he was unbreakable and would defend diane only if the trial could be postponed a couple of months after the after the may 1984 calendar and when the courts refused to accommodate that he had waited long enough and delaying it might mean delaying it again for the Diane to give birth and too much work had been expended too many people's time to delay the inevitable so they said no so Fred Hughie had 24 volumes like you know big notebooks of evidence statements follow-ups transcriptions of tapes and a, and a mountain of possibilities that he had to go through to shape and mold his case he would take it he would work 18 to 24 hour days and so would the rest of his team still not as much as charles ing's case though yeah, no, true true <laughs> charles cheetah so diane was forced to find another lawyer so she chose criminal attorney jim jagger a man who was known for his down home but effective manner what was to be a six-week trial opened may 10th 1984 in eugene at the lane county courthouse courtroom on november 3rd the largest of the rooms of justice in that building the jury panel consisted of nine women which I think was smart. Judge Foote, the man who had taken Christy and Danny Downs from their suspected mother, presided. And um, he was young and intense, but he was also noted for his fairness. Now, the citizens of Lane County, like, turned out, just, like, bombarded the courtroom. Because everybody everywhere was still divided over whether Diane was guilty or innocent. Was she a martyr or was she a devil incarnate? And... Anybody who shared the spectator seats with the paparazzi, the witnesses, and the families felt honored. Now, in his opening remarks, Fred Hughey presented a motive, her fixation for a married man who felt that her kids should not be part of their fantasy life and a, me and a method, the 22 caliber Ruger pistol that she bought in Arizona and denied having when she lived in Oregon. He read passages from her diary, which screamed her love for a man who didn't want her as she wanted him, and to some, you know, you know to titillate the court a little bit, like the awe, he actually read some of her 
her her masturbatory poems and letters. He promised to paint over the next few weeks a real picture of the cruelty that made Diane down so sick. Now, the counselor for the defense, Jager, conceded in turn that there had been an obsession. Yeah, she was obsessed with him. But it wasn't so dark as to have led his Diane to destroy the three people she loved more than anything in the world. Because even beyond her lover, those were her own children. He pointed to her childhood, the alleged molestation, even to her promiscuity as a teenager and her later years as a relevance to that dysfunctional experience. But a killer? Nah, not his client. And he intended to show them a st- Diane's story of a man on Mohawk Road with a gun was not false. So courtroom proceedings paused on May 14th so that the jurors could experience for themselves a physical scene of the crime, you know, go out to the crime scene. And Hughie transported them via chartered bucks. Um, and though it was daylight, the prosecutor accentuated the state of the road at the time of the shootings, relate, you know, just like painted a picture of the dark, lonely night, right? And before the day ended, jurors were then led to the county auto pound to see that red Nissan and how it's still, you know, with blood everywhere and what it looked like. So that he wanted them to see what it would have, you know, what could have been the kid's terror. Now, back in court during the week, the first of the state's witnesses were brought forth and they were mostly personnel from the hospital uh, where Cheryl died and where the doctors struggled to save the other two. There was no nurse rose martin where she talked about diane's peculiar attitude when she was told you know she has she asked how the children were and i told her the doctors were in there working on them and then she she the mother laughed and she said only the best for my kids and then she laughed again well i have good insurance which i can kind of see because i sometimes have nervous laughter you know what i mean right i think in this situation i'd be freaking out i'd be freaking out man (laughs) you know so Dr. John Mackey, you know, the guy in charge of the ER, he said she was extremely composed. She was unbelievably composed. I couldn't believe she was a family member. There were no tears, no disbelief, no, why did this happen to me? Then there was the x-ray tech, Carlene Elbridge. She could not get over the fact that Diane, a mother of three severely wounded youngsters, complained about having to be seen in public without her makeup on. Now, throughout the trial, witnesses came and went. Each one made an impact. Some, imp- some impacts were bigger than others. But the high point and the turning point, uh, the, and what some people would say would be the most riveting point, came when Christy was brought to the stand. Now, she was shaking and she was scared, right? And as they walked her into the courtroom, uh, Fred Hughie put her up on the stand and everything. He goes, it was clear that he detested that moment, the moment he had to bring her into court, to bring a child face on a, on against her mother. But that moment was needed if, uh, if they were going to see justice. Now, he, you know, was pale and kept his jaw tight, but he was also very fatherly towards her. You know, so he led the examination, and from time to time, he would hand her a Kleenex while she paused to wipe her cheeks, and he waited until she regained her composure whenever she broke down. Okay. Um, when she spoke and her voice might be muffled under the sobs, he clarified the question so the jurors could understand her. He, you could see that he loved this girl. It was obvious by the way he talked to her, you know? And the courtroom just waited with bated breath, and then... All of a sudden, that, you know, breath became shorter because Hughie began by explaining to the girl the importance of how she should tell the truth on the stand. She said she understood. He gave her time to relax and her 
when she, you know, her voice became audible because, you know, the tension was wearing off. He asked her several routine questions about her family, her school, herself. And then he was thought she was ready for the, you know, the heavy stuff. Um, he asked her, he, he had her lead through the day about how her family visited the Plur's house and, you know, everything. And she started to become visibly shaken. And he, you know, patted her on the shoulder and, you know, gave her reassurance and he let her recover again. He said, he said, you know what, you're okay. And then he started questioning again. Um, then she, she about what Diane did. And he go, Christy says she leaned over to the back seat and shot Danny. What happened then? What after, happened after Danny got shot? She actually started crying again and he hugged her and but he knew that he needed her testimony. So then quietly he went on. He gen- he rephrased the question and he said, do you remember when you got shot? Yeah. Who shot you? My mom. Could you imagine? That's fucked up. Man. I know. I know. She was what? Seven, eight years old. Yeah. Yeah. See, and I know. I mean, cause what, what he knew he could put her on the stand because from, what I've read is that that counselor that, you know, took baby steps with her would talk about that night, the bad thing, and say, you know, do you know who did it? And she would nod yes. And so she would have her write it down on a piece of paper, put it in an envelope, seal it. And at the end of the session, she'd go, Are you, do you want me to open this? And if she said no, they would burn it. Right? And so, and it finally got to a, part, a point where she let them open it at the end of the session. So I think that's a, that was an amazing way to take care of that situation, you know? So after that moment, the tone for the rest of the trial was just set. Everything else, no matter what anybody say, were anticlimactic. They knew Diane was guilty. Now, outside the walls of the courtroom, Americans who refused to believe that a mother could consciously pull a trigger and hurt her three children, they were like, you know what? She's done. She was vilified. So on June 14, 1984, Judge Foote read aloud the jury's unanimous verdict that she was guilty of murder in the first degree, guilty of second account of attempted murder in the first degree, and guilty of first degree assault, guilty of another count of first degree assault, and guilty of murder. Now, Oregon at the time did not impose a death sentence, but in the subsequent sentencing, the judge sought to deprave her from the daylight of liberty after decrying a life term Plus an additional 15 years for using a firearm. He said the court hopes the defendant will never again be free. I've come as close to that as possible. Now, from the time the verdict and the sentencing, the court recessed while Diane gave birth, of course. She had a beautiful daughter named Amy. And the father of that baby denied her. So she was actually put up for adoption. Now, in 1987, Diane actually briefly escaped from the women's correctional facility because that's back when they could wear their own clothes. No oh, shit. And so she took out it. And I, I, I talked to two of the officers that were there when it happened, when I was in there. I said, how did it happen? They said, well, they thought it was odd that she came out in the summer with a blanket and her heavy coat. But she just threw it over the razor wire and jumped the fence. And, you know, she was only check this out. You escaped from prison, right? You, where are you going to go? Yeah. Um. I would, I would like flee to Mexico, yeah. Canada. Yeah, that'd be good. Right, that's two good. No, ones. she was like maybe two miles down the road, and guess what? She got tried to get pregnant again. Jesus fucking Christ, yeah. man! So after she was recaptured, she was actually then sent to Clinton Correctional Center in New Jersey because Oregon didn't have the capability of keeping her anymore. She could already escape. 
because that's the only facility they had for women. That makes sense. Okay. So then today, well, as of 2006, she was in, they had her down in the Valley Prison for Women in Chowchilla. Um, and she was up for parole in 2006. Now, her former lover and his wife, Lou, they're still happy. And Steve Downs moved to Oregon. Now, check this out. I'm going to cry. But um, the children, Christy and Danny, who survived, Danny is confined to a wheelchair for his entire life, but he's happy. Christy has grown into a very content teenager, and both consider the ending of their story to be the happily ever after that every child has. Because in 1986, they moved into the home and were adopted by Fred and Joe and Hughie. Oh, rock I on. know. I, I cry every time I read that part. But yeah, the DA, actually, the assistant DA adopted those children. So, but yeah. So that's the story of the bitch no, from Oregon. Happily ever after. It, yeah, the kid, the kids, yes. <laughs> but you know, and I saw an interview that um, Amy did, the baby that was given up for adoption, and she was like, she was adopted by a loving family, and when they finally told her she was adopted and who her mom was, she was like, you know, I don't really care. She's not my mom. You know. Sense, yeah. So yeah. All right, boys and girls, remember, you can send us an email at BrutalNation at TwistedBlueLLC.com. Check us out on Medium, Crime Beat on Medium, and wherever you get your blogs. Log on to Facebook and join Citizens of Brutal Nation. Interact with us and uh, just have a good time. That's what this is all about. This show's copyrighted 2024 by Twisted Blue LLC. All rights are reserved. And if you're hearing this or any part of this on anybody else's show or podcast, they're lying, oh, except for Mail Cross Radio. That's right. Aha. See, I almost fucked that up. I'm so surprised you picked up on 2024 so quickly this year. I know. I know. You said 2022 for the longest time last year. So if you hear this on anybody else's show or podcast except for Metal Cross Radio, they're lying. Demon Bastards! And we will see you guys later on. Bye-bye. Bye. So, Scott, when